Welcome to Always Authors, the literary podcast that presents two authors in candid conversation. On this episode, we're excited to bring you Esme Weijin Wang, New York Times best-selling author of The Collected Schizophrenias, and Brandon Taylor, author of the national bestseller Filthy Animals, which won the 2022 Story Prize and was a finalist for the Dylan Thomas Prize. In a heartwarming reunion, these two friends detail how their shared passion for film photography helps their writing, why they miss the early days of Twitter, and what surprises are in store for their editor as they work on their latest novels. Inspiration starts now. Hi, Brandon Taylor. Hello, Esme. How are you? I'm good. Um, I asked if I could talk to you because my ulterior motive is just to catch up. I feel like I haven't gotten to hang out with you or talk to you in a while, and a lot has happened in your life. Actually, a lot has happened in both of our lives, I feel like. Yeah, so much. I feel like the last time... When was the last time we hung out? It, it was a long time ago. So many... See, I don't think it was at AWP. I think it was at something. And we were hanging out with Kristen Arnett. Loft. It yeah. was Loft Literary. Yeah. Yes, in Minneapolis. Yeah. So you are currently in New York. You are living your New York life. Living it up in New York with all the celebrities, as I can see on the socials. Um but yeah, tell me how tell me how New York is for you. How are you feeling in the big city? Yeah, I mean, so before this, I was living in the Midwest for almost a decade. It seems strange to think about now, but yeah, I was in the Midwest for a long time doing so much graduate school. And then in 2021, I realized all my friends had moved out of the Midwest and had moved to you know, I had friends in the Bay Area, friends in LA, friends in New York. And I was like, why am I still in Iowa? I should go <laughs> be somewhere where my friends You're are. Like, I love the low temperatures so much here. I just can't bear to you tear know, myself away. I mean, though that was a thing I was thinking. I do love the Iowa winters. It's very Laura Ingalls Wilder. But um, I decided I was going to move to the city, but I was very anxious about it because New York is New York. Um, it's a very wild place to live, uh, especially for a writer. All my writer friends get no writing done because they live, they live here. But yeah, I made the jump in August and it was immediately one of the best choices I ever made. Um, I can get on a train and be in bookstores I've always dreamed of visiting. I can go to Central Park. I can go to the Met. I can see friends I haven't been able to see since I'd been living in the Midwest. And I can, you know, I I feel like it's, I'm able to engage with a kind of life I always wanted, but never thought I'd be able to do. Um, And shortly after moving to the city, I had all these great opportunities to teach in an MFA program. And that's been a lot of fun. And yeah, it's been, it's been treating me well, I think. I've had a very charmed New York life. How did you make the big Manhattan versus Brooklyn decision? Really, it was rent prices that made that decision for me. You know, I I think people, for a long time, it's been this idea that Brooklyn is very, it's more affordable than Manhattan. But I think 
part of it had to do with the cratering of rent prices during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, and suddenly, for the first time in generations, there was all this open space in Manhattan for like not totally outrageous rent. And when I was trying to find a place in Brooklyn, I mean, <laughs> it was like three, four times the rent I was paying in Iowa City. Oh and I was moving without a job. And so I didn't have a job. I didn't have that settled. And I was like, I don't want to be in a place that's going to like drain my my meager finances. And I found a really cute one bedroom with parquet floors on the Upper East Side for and like it was the cheapest apartment I looked at. Wow. And I looked at places in Bushwick and Bedstuy and Williamsburg. I looked all over Brooklyn and yeah, it was the the cheapest place I looked at in all of my apartment browsing. This was on the Upper East. Wow. <laughs> I know. Yeah, I've never <laughs> lived in New York, so I feel like every time someone I'm talking to someone who lives there, I picture them living an extremely different life from me. Or people just assume I live in New York. Like I used Mm. to get invitations to things that were in New York. And I'd say like, well, are you going to fly me out there? (laughs) Because I I live on the West Coast. Um, But yeah, I I think New York, I I sometimes get asked by budding writers or people who want to be writers, like, is it necessary for me to move to New York? Or how important is it for me to live in New York? And what would you say to that or what would you say to your students who well they are currently in New York I think but um you know people if they asked you yeah I mean I think it's so funny that you say that because you're one of the people I often bring up when people ask me that question I'm always like well like writers like Esme they don't live in New York City and she's incredible (laughs) so um I mean and I for a long time didn't live in New York I felt like I was for a long time literary Twitter's Midwestern correspondent in a way. Um, I sort of like famously did you not You and Garth look, Greenwell? Me and Garth um, and soon Melissa Fibos and Danica <laughs> Kelly. We kind of built a nice sort of Midwestern contingent there. Um, but what I would say to people is that what matters more than living in New York is building what for you is a sense of community. Like for me, I wanted a sense of literary community and I really struggled with not having one at first in the Midwest. And so I found my way to the internet where I found a lot of book Twitter, for example. And I found my way to writers who were not living in, you know, New York and who were doing great work and excellent work. And I think the internet makes it possible for us to be kind of anywhere we want to be or need to be and still be able to participate in a life of literature and a life of letters. And like, I think it's so important to decenter this idea of like the writing demimond as what capital W writing looks like, because writing looks like whatever it looks like, as long as you're writing, as long as you you're doing writing and what matters most is the quality of your work. And yeah, there are going to be opportunities that you maybe don't have access to because you don't live in New York, but there, the writing is so much bigger than what the 25 culture writers in Brooklyn say writing is. Like the world is so much bigger than that. And there are more writers not living in New York than there are living in New York. And I think it's important to always remember that. And I think it's nice to think about how people who haven't lived in New York have found community. Like we, we met each other through Twitter. And when I was a teenager, I lived in a small town that was mostly white and 
I did zines. Like that was how I learned about all kinds of things. Um, uh, like in the mid to late nineties, I was getting like 20 to 30 packages a day of zines and letters and mixtapes and <laughs> just learning about like all the things out there, like Riot Girl and, um, queerness and like ways to feel not so alone in a place where you're like oh I'm really weird and I don't feel like I fit here anyway so I also was really sick when I started using Twitter a lot because I'd been a Twitter member or user since 2009 but didn't really use it that much until about 2013 or 14 when I got mysteriously ill and I think for me, that was a really good way to start meeting people in the literary world and to have literary conversations, especially because even if I was living in New York, I probably wouldn't be able to go out and go to readings and meet people. But I met you on Twitter and that was really lovely. Yeah, I mean, it's... I sometimes feel so nostalgic for those early days. Um, I mean, you were always very famous to me, um, but I feel like when our accounts were smaller, there was such a, like a nice intimacy. Like we could be silly and like vulnerable and squishy and earnest in a way that like, I feel like as our accounts became more these like very outward facing, almost professional against our will <laughs> accounts, people started mm -hmm. projecting a whole host of things onto us. And I feel like the more people project onto you, the less available you're, you're able to be in a public space. And I, I kind of miss when it was just us fooling around you, me and Kia. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and yeah, no. and, yeah. Right. Like we used to, cackle all the time and now it's like you can't be too thirsty because that might be a celebrity you interview one day so yeah <laughs> oh my gosh I deal I think about that all the time just like I things I can't say because I don't want so-and-so to see it or you know yeah that celebrity thing but I also think about this friend of mine who has like a six-figure following on on Twitter and they have had stalkers, like actual stalkers come to their town and like ask around, like, where does so-and-so live? And like, they've had to talk to the FBI and like, there are all these, these are like multiple stalkers. And so I was talking to them and they were saying like, at this point in my life, I feel like I can't be friends with someone unless they're famous or unless I've known them since before I became famous. <laughs> and I just thought that was so sad but also really real. I mean, for them, like I don't have six figure following, but I could understand to some smaller degree. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, I have this group of friends and they, t to annoy me, they say, well, Brandon, it's because you're famous. And I'm like, I am not famous. I know actually famous people. <laughs> and like, I, that is not the case. Um, but it is true that like, since moving to the city, I found myself in the same room as, as people who are actually famous and like watching them operate. I'm just like, wow, you are having to somehow project a sense of intimacy. Yes. And also, also like keeping, yes. Like I've noticed that, um, 
Because an, a weird thing that you are you are um, expressing that I have also noticed is like as you become more known, you get access to other people who are even more known than you are. Yes. And then you start to like interact with them, and you notice like oh they're like not telling you your their email address yet until like a certain point in your when they get to know that you and know that you're not trying to 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 do something like just trying to get Truly. access. Or trying to, I don't know, or that you're a weirdo or something. And so, like, I've noticed with these certain friends um, in certain industries where it's like, oh, okay, we're at the phase where, like, I can have your real phone number now <laughs> and, and not, like, you know, anyway. Yeah. It's very weird. I know. It's so strange. And it's this thing, I, you know, but what I have found is, like, growing up, like, in my particular family where nobody was impressive and no one was cool and and everybody you got treated like dirt no matter what like that has been like great training for this life of mine because not only do I not take myself seriously I like really believe in respecting people's privacy and like treating them like normal people and that has been Mm -hmm. every time I encounter like a very well-known person the comment I often get from them is like, wow, it was nice, nice to hang out with a normal person. This is so rare and alarming. And I'm like, yeah, it's because my parents taught me not to have (laughs) self-esteem. Like I find that all at once so touching and also a bummer. Like, but yeah, I feel like that is what is necessary to really corral famous people is just to have no, no sense of, anyone being cooler than anyone else, um, including yourself. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay. Well, I do want to pivot to a topic that I wanted to talk to you about um, ever since you got into film photography. I love Um, this. Because I, so I, um, I had done photography. So like, I, I think we may have talked about this, but before I was like a quote unquote writer, I was known as a visual artist. Like when I went to Yale, I was only doing visual art. And so everybody there knew me as a visual artist. And it was only when, so my freshman and sophomore years, I only took like, like visual arts things like, um, like drawing or photography or sculpture or whatever. And then it was not until I went to Stanford when I transferred in my junior year that I actually started taking any writing classes. So I'd done a lot of film photography and I'd like gone to art school and it was a really interesting transition to move to writing and then to come back to visual art. And so I decided that the visual art I would try to go back to was photography. Um, And so I was really excited (laughs) when you started getting into film photography because I hadn't really shot film since 2014 or so it's just expensive like we can talk about that as well but like it's expensive I was only shooting film back then so you know out of a role I would only have like maybe three or four pictures that I was happy with and yet that was costing like however much to develop and get printed and and you know but I I love looking at your photos I love your enthusiasm for it um you got me back into it so i i recently um bought a leica r3 um and so i uh i've been shooting with that leicas are so weird um 
they load unlike any other camera, mm-hmm. which I did not realize when I shot my first roll. And so I got an email from the the photo place that I've always used here saying like, you know, your entire roll is blank. And I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. This is so embarrassing. And then I went online and I looked at like one of those websites where they scan like camera manuals mm-hmm. and it was like yeah like as load backwards like you put you hold the film in your right hand and you load it in from the right side not like from the left to the right like most other cameras oh. anyway that's my long one was it butt kiss <laughs> the, <laughs> the site with the manual it's just like some website that was like please donate $3 if you feel like this manual has been helpful to you. And it looked like it was built on GeoCities and like had existed since forever. Oh, I know the one. Anyway, I know just um, the one you mean. <laughs> I, I hang out there all the time. <laughs> so yeah, tell me about your film situation. What are you interested in shooting these days, etc. Oh, well... I mean, I can't believe you bought a Leica. You have to, you have to talk me off the ledge of buying a Leica. I every day of my life, I know, and I know that I, I am so ill suited for Leicas because I don't like rangefinders. I don't um, have a rangefinder though. The R's are not rangefinders. It's the M's that are the rangefinders. Oh. Oh, interesting. Yes. Inter- okay, so maybe you, maybe you will talk me further down onto the ledge of buying a Leica. <laughs> Um, yes. Yeah. So I started shooting film photography last year um, on my birthday, and and I started on my birthday because um, I was lying in bed miserable because the novel the novel I was working on was dying a very slow, painful, and brutal death, and I just felt so blocked and so unable to like do anything and I was so miserable and I had had a really difficult 2020 and so as I was turning 31 last year on my birthday I was like I feel like I really I can't have another year like I had in 2020 I just cannot do that again I need to like find a reason to get up and to get out and I just need And our birthdays something. are close together. That's another Oh, that's Oh, that's right. We are Gemini babies. I love yes. that. Mm-hmm. Um and it, I just felt like I needed something. I needed something. And I had been watching all these like YouTube videos about film photography and I was like, you know, I've always wanted to shoot photos. I've never been able to I never felt like visual art was a thing that could be for me because my brother is an art prodigy and like I had a whole complex growing up about how I wasn't the the artsy one because my brother was literally a prodigy um and so I was like maybe I can like maybe film photography can be a nice thing to do maybe it can be just like a thing I get into and so on my birthday and why film instead of digital well because um I think I had this idea that film would be nice because film as you know like it's not so much about how many shots can you shoot it's more about slowing down composing thinking very carefully and like I just needed something to slow me down and to just see the world again and and like I'm very into very finicky technical things. I used to be a scientist, and so like it was right up my alley. A thing I could get obsessed with that was very technical and had endless permutations. Um, and so I went to the 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 local thrift store, and I was like, I'm gonna make a deal with myself. If they have a camera, I will buy it, and I will start shooting film. 
and I went in and they had a camera. They had a camera with a, a portrait lens on it, uh, which in retrospect is kind of silly. And I went home and I learned everything I could. I taught myself everything, everything I could, went out and started shooting roles. And it's been, you know, uh, a year of learning and having a lot of fun. And yeah, it has, I think it has like really saved me, honestly. Like it really has just been so much fun and so healing and affirming and it's been yeah a real delight to have um yeah and so I feel like I also found one of my forever cameras I feel like every photographer has those cameras that are their like their heart their soulmate cameras um Mm -hmm. and one of mine is the Mamiya 645 um (gasps) I love it I I used to be very I had a Mamiya 6 and I hated it. Like, I was just like, I don't understand this camera. It is so counterintuitive. Um, but then I got a 645 and it changed everything. And now I'm like all medium format all the time. And I think... Yeah, someday you're going to get that Hasselblad. <laughs> I really hope not. I can't. It's so expensive. You know, I was, I had no idea how much those cost. And I actually went online and looked just for the heck of it. And I was like, there are cars that cost less than this camera anyway sorry Hus- to interrupt no just... Hasselblads are so expensive like <laughs> Leicas are getting there like Leica M6s are getting there Hasselblads cost as much as like you could buy out you could put a down payment on a house <laughs> yes yes and it's not, not even an exaggeration That's, that I'm we're not exaggerating it is terrifying I think yeah. I saw one that was like forty thousand mm-hmm. dollars I was like how is this even like who shoots with these anyway it's like the sensor um, must be the sensor must just be <laughs> made of pure gold <laughs> um it's terrifying um and another one of my forever cameras is the Contax T3 it's a point and oh. shoot 35 millimeter it is I call it my cheat mode camera because it, it's like it never misses it's perfect i had little... a t2 yeah i had a oh, contacts t2 no, yeah that is expensive so. now thanks to kylie jenner <laughs> um no kendall kendall jenner had a t2 and took it on tv and now you cannot buy one south oh of gosh. three thousand dollars <laughs> yeah. i should have saved mine i think i sold it a while oh that's the other thing about film photography though right is that the cameras are one of the few things that are appreciating in value right now because they're not making any more of them and they're only getting more popular you know film photography is a part of this analog resurgence of you know and you're seeing it with not only with film photography, but like film cinematography is coming back. Uh, it's coming back with records. I mean, you're, you're seeing like this total like fountain pens are having a moment. Typewriters are having a moment. It's like we feel this intense nostalgia for analog things. And it's, it's honestly kind of beautiful. I really love it. I know that I have personally picked up perhaps one too many analog habits since being in... <laughs> In the pandemic, I mean, it's like I'm. I bought a record player. It's sort of over there. A record player. I got fountain pens. I got film cameras. I mean, we can what also is talk about fountain pens because <laughs> I really got into fountain pens during the fan- pandemic. But I do want to talk about two things that you mentioned. One mm-hmm. was that I find going to photography or like visual art very helpful when I'm stuck with my writing, and so that was one thing I wanted to mention. I think because it does feel like you're using a very different part of your brain, or at least for me it does. And then the other thing I wanted to mention was, um, I can't remember what it was. Okay, well, maybe it'll come back to me. But um, yeah, that's uh, 
something that's really nice, I think, is if I'm stuck with my writing, it helps sometimes to just like draw something or like, you know, take some photographs. Yeah, but that's because you're like really good as an artist. As <laughs> Your drawings are so beautiful. Don't you also do like watercolors? I do, but yeah, so that's just been like a semi-recent thing that I was doing, yeah. I kind of want to get I mostly do just like pet portraits, though. Like, like that's just my, you know. Yeah, they're amazing, though. (laughs) Like, they're incredible. (laughs) They're amazing. I mean, I've Oh, the other thing I wanted to mention is that um, I love the connection you made between film photography and being a scientist because... I realized when I was in art school that I was really attracted to process-based arts, which stunk because like, I actually am not very processed. Like I'm I like dodging and burning a photo like a hundred times to get the exact right print. Like that kind of stuff makes me nuts. Or like I took a printmaking class, I was doing screen printing and like, you really have to like align every layer perfectly to get like the perfect print. Um, or I did like a book arts class when I was at Yale and I was stuck in the basement, like inhaling horrible fumes and you have to like arrange all the letters backwards and upside down. And of course I made this book that had so much type and was so long and I don't even have a copy of it because I had to give one to the professor and they have one copy at their book arts, um, library at Yale. But, um, but yeah, like I don't even have a copy of it. It's just like these really finicky things that I find myself attracted to, but that I'm not good at. Like I'm just <laughs> ugh, like, but I love that you love the finickiness. Oh yeah. That is so funny. I, I, I do wonder if it's because I was a scientist or I ended up being a scientist because I am in fact like really into pr- both process and incredibly technical finicky things. And it kind of bleeds over into my writing. I don't know if you've noticed. <gasps> I was going to say that. Yeah, all my characters, they're all doing these. My my ex-boyfriend used to say, Yeah, you love a you love a man with a technical task. And I was like, I kinda <laughs> do. Like all my characters are like doing these like very niche, like very hyper specific technical tasks. And I'm always like, Well, well, I wouldn't make them do anything that I wouldn't do myself. Like I <laughs> I I would love to be I love being in an archive. I love endlessly pipetting the same liquids over and over. Um, I used to do a lot of scalpel work and and microscopy, like these very precise, very, it's got to be dead accurate kind of tasks. And I... I really love it. I love doing it. I love like sorting Drosophila into like tiny little categories. Oh, like the Drosophila. <laughs> yes, except for me, it was nematodes. Um, a lot of C. elegans. Um, but yeah, I mean, and I do think I do love that about film photography. And it's also true that like when I get my negatives back, I'm like in Photoshop like very gently adjusting the sliders like hmm if I change this this way if I change it that way let's duplicate this layer let's do a levels mask let's change the transparency like Mm -hmm. I'm I'm like really into the the sort of step-by-step process and I do think that a lot of my fiction instead of plot I just have process like my characters are just doing just doing processes and it's yeah, I mean, it's my way of engaging the world, I guess. I love a, love a technical process. After a quick word from our sponsors, we will pack some books for a metaphorical trip to a desert island. So here's something I want to talk about for a second because we're avid readers. 
Always Authors is sponsored by a free service called Bookfinity. It's easy to use. You go to bookfinity.com and set up a free account by taking a brief quiz that identifies the kind of books you like to read the most. Then Bookfinity matches you to those kinds of books, helping you learn about books you don't know yet. You can give a thumbs up or down to the books they suggest, so each time you visit the site, the recommendations become more refined. I think it's an ingenious way to help curate our personal libraries. So I'm going to check out bookfinity.com and see what new books they help me discover. Every episode of Always Authors spotlights an independent bookseller. Today, we're giving a shout out to BookSuite, a family-owned and operated bookshop in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where I got my MFA at UMich, featuring a staff of experienced book lovers and shipping to anywhere on earth. Brandon, if you were being sent to a desert island and I had to send you with three books. Okay, first of all, I was so nervous coming up with these three books. And my partner was like, you do realize he's not actually going to a desert island and you're not actually making him do this. Because I was that nervous. I was like, okay, what? Like, why would you need those? Also, I was like, I definitely should send a hatchet and not like books. But anyway, um, okay, so here we go. The first book would be Garner's Modern English Usage, which is a really fun book that describes word usage and phrase usage and all kinds of interesting things. And it's very thick, which I think is important if you're going to be stuck on a desert island and you could just go through the whole thing and learn all the usage tips on all these like weird phrases and words you didn't know and words that you thought meant kind of the same thing, but they're actually completely different or you use them in completely different contexts. We um, used to keep a copy of it in our bathroom because uh, (laughs) the idea would be that you would learn like a new kind of English usage thing, you know, as you were on the Ah. toilet. So anyway, that's probably too much information, but that's my first pick. And then my second pick would be Anna Karenina because I read Anna Karenina once every year. And I think, yeah, if I'm going to have to read it once a year for the rest of my life, probably you should read it at least once on a desert island, unless you're just reading the Garners the whole time. And then the third book that I would pick is Persuasion because you love Persuasion. And I just think it's nice to send you with a book that I know you like. Oh, I love... Esme, this is so surreal. This is how I know we're we're meant to be. Um, So if I knew you were going to a desert island, um, well, the first book that I wrote down was Anna Karenina. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Because it's perfect. It's a perfect novel. And it's so moving and it's so beautiful and it's so entertaining and it just... It's a book you could spend your whole life rereading, which you already... Wow, we are so on the same wavelength here. Um, I love that. I love that. I Yes. And I'm reading Anna Karenina right now. Um, it's so good. Uh, we can talk about that later. Um, I would also send you with Beyond the Pleasure Principle by Freud, um, because it's just... Um, last summer, I also set myself the task of reading all of Freud's canonical works, My Hot Freud Summer. And Beyond the Pleasure Principle, I feel like kind of contains the secrets to contemporary life somehow. Like, it's just so almost noxiously on point. 
Um, and the final book that I would send you with is Louise Gluck's Collected Poems, 1962 to 2012, because she's my favorite poet. And I feel like she, her work and your work really speak to each other, the sort of like mordant, persistent <laughs> dread, but also the beauty to life. It's always a little bit twilight, always a little bit dusk in her poems. And I feel that way when I read your stories too. So, and it's really thick. So you could read a poem a day. Yeah. This is what I wanted to talk to you too. And this is again, just like me selfishly wanting to, to chat with you about this is that I'm working on book edits right now. So like I have this novel and uh, we have the same editor at Riverhead um, and he's seen it and given feedback, but I'm, so I'm working on this, this series of edits and I, I have like two more months or something, but I was very curious to hear about your novel editing process because I feel like I'm drowning in quicksand very quickly. <laughs> oh, wow. That's so, well, Esme, it's so funny you say that. I just turned in copy edits to him last night. So I love that we're on the same merry-go-round together. It really helps having a friend who's going through it. Like, it really does help knowing that. I mean, it's it's interesting. I feel like, so before... In a previous life, a recent previous life, I was a, an editor at a literary magazine at Electric Lit. And so I have a lot of experience editing and sort of being on the other side of that desk. And so very often when I turn in a draft to Cal, before he even gets back to me, I kind of already know what he's going to say. And I kind of already know what an editor would say. And I'm already kind of thinking a little bit further down the road. And so when he comes back with an edit, I'll be like, okay, yeah, 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 whatever you say but I have my own agenda. And so I often will sort of exceed the scope of what he's asked me to do. And so then I'll do like a wild rewrite and then I print it out and then I retype the whole thing <laughs> and I give it back to him. And then he has notes. And then the notes that time around are usually more like line level thing or questions about the plot. Um, I mean, his edits tend to be more in, for me, like more in the form of, like questions and so in that way it feels a little bit more like therapy <laughs> like, <laughs> it's like it's like now would would he do that or like would she go there why would she go there can you help me understand like it's very it's very trying to understand how did that make them feel oh totally oh there was a character <laughs> in the book who he was just like this is a tough cat we are, I don't like him very much he needs <laughs> some polish like he needs some work um and yeah and so his edits for me tend to be more in the form of like questions just trying to make sure that the character's motivations feel legible at least in some degree to the reader and then once I've sorted that out then it's more like fix this comma change that sentence they're never like you know too structural unless I've totally just done a bad job I'm really nervous about how, what he's going to say about this round of edits because what I did, and uh, he doesn't know I'm doing this, so what I did was I stripped all the meat off the skeleton that I felt was the right skeleton or like the, the only stuff that I liked mm -hmm. because I was starting to feel like I didn't like it anymore. Mm -hmm. And so I just went through and removed like 50% of the book and now I'm just rebuilding the meat onto the skeleton um but it's completely different looking meat like it's 
so I'm, I'm, yeah, he's either going to be like, hmm, this is interesting and, but also kind of a different book, or he's going to be like, what the hell did you well, do? Well, Esme, what I, what so. I will tell you is that it, it's going to be fine. I've done that to him so many times. <laughs> The number of times where he's, like, sent me an edit, like, I don't know, maybe tweak this a little, and he's gotten a completely different... <laughs> yes. Oh, that's what I'm doing. Oh, it's totally fine. For my most recent book, Filthy Animals, there was a story in there that he was kind of, like, poking at just a little bit. He's like, I think just, like, a little... It's, like, 2% away from being totally done. We, we, were in, we were in first past pages, and I was like, I think I'm going to rewrite the whole story. <laughs> He's like, okay, that's not the most chaotic thing I've had an author do on me. Go for it, you know? And I think it was to the book's, yeah. you know, benefit. But he, that's what I can say about him as an editor, is that he's kind of down for anything. And it, <laughs> and if you think it's going to make the book better, he's going he's gonna to let you go for it. I mean, what I will also say is that there have been times where I thought I was like making the book better and taking these big swings. Like with my novel, real life, I, you know, I had a first draft that he felt was really strong. And then I went away to Iowa and I had all these Iowa voices in my head. And I oh, was like oh. putting all this new stuff in the book that I thought was going to be, I was like, no, I'm going to show everyone what a good writer I am. And I turned <laughs> it in and he was like, yes, a lot of this new material is excellent. Some of it was better when it was more subtle. Maybe you should take out some of the explanations. <laughs> and he was totally right. Like he was totally, he was absolutely correct. So he'll, he is an excellent companion to have by your side as you're like f- trying to figure out what can stay, what needs to go. And you should feel like he's got your back no matter what. Take the big swing. He loves it when you take the big swing. See, I feel like I'm in therapy now. You're my therapist. We're in therapy. You're like, it's going to be okay, honey. Listen, like, don't worry about it. That's what friends are for. I got your back. <laughs> that's what friends are. Because, I mean, it is I mean, it is nerve-wracking. And this is your novel, right? Yeah. I mean, this is my second novel. Yeah. It's nerve-wracking to tear up a novel read <laughs> I feel like if you do that and you don't feel nervous, something is wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like something's gone haywire, a little haywire in your brain. You yeah, know? wild. <laughs> but I think it must be so interesting to work with the same editor for multiple books because I have not had that um, experience before. Like my first and second books were edited by different people. And then now I have Cal for my third book. And and all three of them have also been with different presses slash houses. So that's also, I mean, I, I really love when an author stays with like the same house and you see like all the covers match and like, it's this really amazing, I don't know how, mm, like, can you say what the book you just turned in copy edits for is in terms of like, is it a novel or short stories or oh, like, yeah. can you say the genre or is it? just secret oh it is not a secret i mean i think it's very out there um so i just turned in a novel it's called the late americans um and you know i wrote the first draft of that book in 2019 and i wrote it as like for me they were stories and when we sold it to cal um he was like i think it's a novel and he offered no guidance as to how that could be made possible (laughs) and so when I was talking about the book that was dying on me it was the late Americans that was the book that Mm. last year was just 
it was dead meat. I had no confidence that that book was going to survive. Um, but then I found a way, <laughs> found a way through Canal Scarred. All things are possible. Life finds a way. Truly. Um, and found a way through the book. But, you know, I mean, it's strange. So like when we when I first sold f- Real Life and Filthy Animals, my first two books to Riverhead, like I was in my first semester of grad school. It seemed like a great idea to have a home for those first two books. Very exciting. And after Real Life came out, we were going to sell the next book. And I thought it would be one book, one book at a time. And Riverhead made an offer for the next two novels. And so then I had this, this conundrum of like, well, being with a publisher for two books is one thing. Being with the same publisher and the same editor for four books, that is like a different thing for some writers that is their entire body of work you know like that is that's like marriage as opposed to dating exactly exactly and I was like and having to make that choice one book in and like four months out of grad school (laughs) you know like at the very start of my career having suddenly to think four books down the road what is that going to look like I could be a different person (laughs) by and I was a different person by then so you know, it was a tough decision to make, but I felt like they had done such a beautiful job on, you know, real life. And I felt really good about Cal as an editor. And I felt we had such a great rapport and it just seemed like that was the right home for me. Um, and so signed up for two more books with them. And so my first four books will be with this editor, with this publisher. And there is a lot of freedom in knowing like that I have a home for my first four books. <laughs> whatever that's gonna look like um but it is you know it's it's hard because you have to kind of try to see into the future but I imagine it must also be nice to have had for you this kind of grand tour of American publishing you've worked with so many different kinds of publishers on so many different kinds of books you know yeah because my first book um was infamously rejected 41 times foolishly and then it's just like desperate desperate to find someone to publish it like I I actually sent it out as as an attachment to an email to like 10 friends saying like I don't think this book is going to get published but I just want someone to read it so like here it is like I guess that might be it and my agent at the time had said like okay like we're done with this book maybe it'll find a home someday but not right now and so I ended up sending it to Unnamed Press myself just because I had read a little thing that a friend of mine, a niece, had written about them in Publishers Weekly. And they were a very, very new small press. Like, I wouldn't even call them a small press, really. They were more like a micro press. And so I went through that process. And then with the next book, Grey Wolf, it was also a small press. But they're, you know, a more known quantity and like a kind of bigger small press. And they've got like the FSG Macmillan like umbrella. And now I'm at Riverhead, which is way different than either of those experiences. Yeah, I mean, I'd love to hear a little bit about like how, I mean, I have my suspicions as to how it's different because I have my friend Pam and I joke about Riverhead kind of having a panopticon, the sort of all seeing, (laughs) nothing gets past the Riverhead publicist. They see all and know all, but I'm curious a little bit about like how, how different it has been for you. 
Well, okay. So like my experience of getting edited for the border of paradise, I actually, I want to post this on Instagram someday because so, um, you know, we, we did some edits like typically through email. Um, and then my editor, Chris Heiser actually flew out from Los Angeles to San Francisco and I, uh, rented a office space um, for us to meet in. Um, and I, I, I saw the selfie of like that day, um, because there was a mirror in that room and I took a selfie in the mirror. And then we just sat at the table with like the manuscript in front of us and like went through it that way. And I, I don't think I'll ever have that experience again, like in terms of that kind of editing. So like, I got to be there, like sitting next to him as he was like telling me about like, like this scene here, maybe this needs another scene, like this, you know, just like structural things. And it wasn't just line editing at that point. It was like still the bigger stuff. Um, but yeah, the fact that I would have an editor who would like fly up and like, um, and then introduce me to like the manager of a bookstore, like just because he was friends with them. And like, we just went to the bookstore and he was like, this is so-and-so, you know, so that, also, I think it was a unique experience mm. from being with a very, very small press. And then Grey Wolf, I mean, Grey Wolf, honestly, like they feel really big as like as a small press, but they're still, they're so, I don't know, like they're so hands-on. And I know people who have gone to big publishers from Grey Wolf and then went back to Grey Wolf. Like, I feel like I know a lot of people actually who have done that. Yeah. So <laughs> that, that like, like they're amazing. They're absolutely terrific and you know i i never felt like with publicity or marketing that they that i was being underserved because i was with a small press which is funny too because um i was talking to someone about publicity just just to chat about like an independent publicist and they were like but you're with riverhead so like honestly i could not do anything that riverhead wouldn't be able to do for you and i was like oh okay that's great. He was like anybody else like I could work with and do stuff, but like Riverhead, you're 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 okay. So Yeah, I mean I my friend Pam and I also joke that Riverhead is really a publicity arm with a publisher attached. Like they <laughs> they're so good at it. They're so good at it. And it's because they have like a million publicists who each have a system. Like it's an incredible operation and I feel like they do such a great job on their books they are so not that I mean all literary publicists are tireless defenders of you know literature but Riverhead especially they are like a well-oiled machine um they see all and know all and I'm like oh my gosh um they're probably they're probably recording this conversation as we speak preparing (laughs) something um but yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting that you say that. I mean, Grey Wolf. I mean, I love Grey Wolf. Grey Wolf is great. I, for the longest time, wanted to be a Grey Wolf author. They had my heart. Um, I so desperately wanted to be with them. It was really Grey Wolf and Riverhead were the two publishers I most wanted to, to be with in the world. Um, and they do such a great job on their books. They do. But Esme, I feel like you, you sort of elided the most chaotic thing about that gray wolf <laughs> thing which is that you sent it to a contest right i know again because my agent was not interested like have i told you this story? Yes. yeah so like 
my, I, I, it was like, uh, it was like a fairy tale or like a fable. I approached my agent three times to ask if I could write this essay collection about schizophrenia. And each time they said, no, like I'm not interested. And the last meeting was at this very fancy restaurant across from Grand Central Station. And I was looking around and I was like, wow, like big deals are being made in this, in this restaurant. And I don't remember what I ordered, but I remember saying like, I know I brought this up before, but like I'm writing these essays and they all seem to be about schizophrenia. And I was wondering if like, I, I know I've brought this up before, but like, do you think maybe like we could go out with it? And she was like, no, I, I don't think that's a good idea. I think you should write this other book. And then she proceeded to describe this completely other book, which I agreed to write at that meeting. I actually have zero memory of what that book was, but it was some kind of like long form nonfiction book. And then afterwards, I was just like, hmm, I don't know. I guess that's it. But then I saw that Grey Wolf was having their contest and they needed 100 pages minimum, and I had exactly 100 pages. And so I sent it in myself. I sent it into the contest. And I remember going to AWP that year, and I happened to, like, well, happened to. I went to the Grey Wolf table, and I was like, hey, like, do you know when the results of the contest will be <laughs> announced? And they were like, oh, like, I don't know. I, I, I don't, I'm not, probably soon. And then, yeah, I was... I was in that year of Border of Paradise publicity when I found out that I won the Grey Wolf nonfiction prize. So, yeah, and then I was like, oh, now, now I have this other book. And then I had to, like, contact my agent at the time and say, like, hey, I won the Grey Wolf nonfiction prize. So, I remember so vividly the day that prize was announced on Twitter. I remember it. I remember that great picture of you. I remember the the announcement. Esme Weijun Wang has won the Grey Wolf. I remember it so vividly because I was like, I was just hanging out with Esme. (laughs) It it was just, and I remember it because I was like, I love Border of Paradise. Um, You were so kind about that book. I love that book. And I have met several people who, for whom that is their favorite book, Esme. Like that book is, and I remember reading Border of Paradise. I remember reading it that summer. I remember when I got the notification that my copy had been delivered and I rushed home from lab and I got it out of the box. And yeah, I love that novel. I think that novel is so special. Like you're writing about music, very underrated, I feel. It's such a great novel about trying to be an artist and, and, you do that thing I love, which is you climb inside of a very niche field, which is piano making. Like everything about that novel I love, which, you know, you know, I love it, but I, I. Well, it's, it's just great because it's always great for me to hear that because there are a lot of people who like only know me as a nonfiction writer. And I never thought I would be a nonfiction writer. I'm teaching, I'm a visiting professor in an MFA program as a nonfiction writer. I get asked to teach nonfiction. I never get asked to talk about fiction. And I never thought I would be a nonfiction writer. I just kind of fell into it by accident. And so, yeah, it always makes me happy when people have read the novel. So, yeah. Your first of many novels. (laughs) Yes, yes. You know, we're both going to have these incredibly long and wonderful literary careers. Yes, Um, and a long and fruitful literary friendship. (laughs) Yes, exactly. And and I think that is actually a great way to end because uh, 
I think that's that's about all for now. Yes. But we'll talk again soon. Very soon. <laughs> okay, bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. Please visit alwaysauthors.com to learn about upcoming episodes, to read a transcript of this episode, to buy the books discussed here, and for more information about our sponsors, bookfinity.com and Buxton Books. Always Authors is an exclusive production of Atomic Focus Entertainment. Cheers. <laughs>